the Huntley Baptist Church podcast. We hope that this message can be an encouragement to you today. Please feel free to contact us at huntleybaptist at extra.co.nz or visit us at huntleybaptist.com. When Murray asked what parables I felt particularly drawn to in Matthew 13, if I could have that slide number one, uh, Matthew 13, 44 was what drew my eye. So it says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto treasure hid in a field, the which a man hath found, he hideth, and for joy thereof goeth and selleth all that he hath, and buyeth that field. Now before we delve into that, I want to share with you a treasure hunting story that actually really fascinated me when I was a kid. So if I go to slide number two, who knows who this this dapper-looking gentleman is? I'll be impressed if you do. Does anybody know? Mr. Whitaker does kind of look like Mr. Whitaker. <laughs> no, a different kind of treasure. No, no, not Chamberlain. This is Howard Carter. Um, so he lived early, early 1900s. That was kind of when he was around. And uh, he had a sponsor or a business partner uh, named George Herbert who was the fifth Earl of Carnarvon. Now, both these men, I didn't have a good one of, of George, um, both these men were really keen archaeologists. And at that time, Egypt was the place uh, where you needed to be when it came to archaeology. So this is early 1900s. So Howard was this brilliant young professional. And uh, although George was uh, an amateur, uh, he had a large fortune and uh, he also had a castle. It was called Highclere Castle. Now, I couldn't resist putting in a photo of it. Does anybody know? I'm oh, a little bit of a Downton Abbey fan. Yes, he is the real, real life uh, Lord of Downton Abbey. So, yes, and that's his castle. Like I said, couldn't resist that. So, after a few years, uh, these guys are having relatively average success. Um, they finally secure their desired location to dig which is in the famous Valley of the Kings. So it's the next slide if we can have a look at that. Um, so at that time, um, Howard was convinced that there's this long lost tomb um, of this Egyptian boy king. But nobody else really agrees. All the other experts think, no, everything's being found. There's nothing more really to, of value to find. In fact, the guy who had the kind of the plot before them quite willingly gave it up and said, go hard. Um, he didn't think there was anything of value left to find. So Howard and George set about, they've got this idea, they think if we remove all the rubbish, all this rubble, and go down to bedrock, that we're going to be able to see a bit better where a potential tomb may be cut out. So they go about doing that. They remove large portions of rock, there's so much, so much of it, and they spend a lot of money to do it. After five years of digging, they find pretty much nothing. Um, and, that, and that was five years of solid digging. They also had World War I in between, of that, in between that. <laughs> uh, so once, so Howard Carter, he gets summoned to Downton Abbey, Highclere Castle, the official name, uh, where he's told that George is no longer prepared to keep funding this dig. And he says to, to Howard, this is going to be my last season because of the hot weather, they have seasons for digging. So, uh, but George... But Howard, sorry, bear with me, Howard Carter, the one we saw the photo of, he says, look, George, you've got to give me one more season. And he said, I will even put up my own money 
Um, he wasn't a rich man. I'm going to put up my own money. If I spend all my own money, if I spend everything I have, that's fine. So George is so impressed by Howard's persistence and willingness to put everything that he has on the line that he agrees to one more season. So finally, after years of digging, Howard Carter and his team clear all this rubble around this favoured spot down to bedrock. And legend has it that a water boy who was carrying uh, some water and some rubble trips over a strange lip in the bedrock. And he alerts the site foreman who raises it with Carter and this lip turns out to be a step. If I could go to the next slide. And those steps turn out to be a series of steps cut into the solid rock and leading to a sealed door with that seal on it. Now, as someone who's interested in treasure, this is just like, that must have been so exciting. I can't even contain it. So, and this insignia that's on the door is a very special one. It describes that this is a tomb of a royal person, not just, they found lots of commonplace tombs for people, but this had this insignia of a royal tomb. So Carter, so excited, fills it all up again with rubble, because he's worried that people are going to come and try and break in when he's not there. So he hides it from prying eyes and he contacts George Herbert, who's back in his castle in London, with the following message. At last, have made wonderful discovery in Valley, a magnificent tomb with seals intact. Recovered same for your arrival. He kind of uses text language. They must have paid maybe per letter or something like that to get the message across. Per word they paid, so it's quite, <laughs> it's quite cut short. Congratulations, it says at the end. So, with that in mind, I thought we could start on a little bit of a biblical treasure hunt as well. Um, and we're going to start once again. So Matthew 13, 44. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto treasure hid in a field, the which a man has found and hideth, and for joy thereof goes and sells all that he has and buyeth the field. So for context, I, uh, I feel like this is kind of like a midpoint in Jesus' ministry. So he's been baptized, he's survived the temptation of the wilderness, he's called the first of the disciples, he's given the famous Sermon on the Mount, he's healed a whole bunch of folk. Now people, are, now people, especially the religious leaders of the day, like the Pharisees, seem intent on drilling down into his purpose and his ministry, even going as far as accusing him of uh, doing miracles with the help of the devil. Now Jesus is starting to compare ordinary, everyday things with the mysterious kingdom of heaven. Okay, so I'm keen to do some pretty old-fashioned deep diving for treasure. Um, hopefully we don't go down too many rabbit holes. Bear with me. Uh, let's see what we can unearth. Um, one of the things I love about the Bible is the fact that we have it. And I know that's a bit circular thinking. <laughs> But we're party to all these amazing private discussions and lessons between Jesus and his disciples. So we're even party to things that the disciples missed out on, like Jesus' private prayers with the Father. We get to see into those things. I've often thought how special it would have been to actually be there, you know, to sit and listen to Jesus talk. And I'm sure it would have been amazing. But the reality is that some, if not most, of the people that were physically there missed out on truly how truly special and important the things Jesus was saying were. If we go to the next slide, in Matthew 13, 9 to 11, it says, Who hath ears to hear, let him hear. And the disciples came and said unto him, talking, about, talking to Jesus, Why speakest thou unto them, the crowds, in parables? 
He answered and said unto them, Because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. So Jesus goes on to explain that some people, in the following verse, he goes on to explain that some people, due to the lack of truly listening, will only ever receive a small portion of understanding. The surface level of the parable, they'll get, and after a while, even that's, but after a while, sorry, even that small part of understanding will fade. So those who are truly listening, and those who are truly seeking will receive greater understanding, and that understanding will even it will increase even more. And to me, it's like, well, that's what we want, yeah? Like, we want to know God more, not just know of him, but we want to know him. The world knows about him. We want to know him. So if we go to the next slide, please. Uh, Matthew thirteen thirty four. All these things spake Jesus unto the multitude in parables, and without a parable spake he not unto them. That it might be fulfilled, that which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables, I will utter things that have been kept secret from the foundation of the world. We get to hear things that have been kept secret since the foundation of the world. 1 Peter 1.12 talks about how the prophets were wondering how this salvation is going to work about how Christ would suffer, about how man would be redeemed. It says that even the angels were desiring to see it too. And we get to understand it, or try to understand it, <laughs> through the revelation of his word. Romans 6.25 says, Now to him that is of power to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which was kept secret since the world began. So following on from that, let's have a look at, uh, at this man who'd found this treasure in the field and, and see what else the Bible relates treasure to. So Isaiah 33, 6. And wisdom and knowledge shall be the stability of thy times and strength of salvation, and the fear of the Lord is his treasure. So it talks about wisdom and knowledge being the stability and strength of salvation and the fear of the Lord being treasure. Then we've got Proverbs 2, 3 to 5. Yeah, if thou criest after knowledge and liftest up thy voice for understanding, if thou seekest her as treasure and searchest for her as hidden treasures, then thou shalt understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. So knowledge and understanding of God, again, likened to riches and hidden treasure and associated with the fear of the Lord. Makes sense, yeah? The more we understand God the more we're exposed to how mighty and powerful and how just plain big he is, the more we should understand how worthy he is of respect, reverence, honor, praise, and to be honest, realize just how kind of terrifying he can be. <laughs> At times, he's massive and powerful. Colossians 2. I know I'm running through verses, but Colossians 2, 1 to 3. This is Paul speaking. He's speaking to the Colossian church, which he's never met. They've never been there in person. For I would that you know what great conflict I have for you, and for them at Laodicea. For as many, sorry, for as many who have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love, and unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Wow. 
So I read that and I think, wow, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are bundled up in the understanding of God and his son Jesus. So the verses after this go, uh, go on to talk about how we're rooted, we're to be rooted in Jesus and built up in him, established in him, that he's the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form, that we are complete in him. So for me personally, I think it's quite reasonable to think that we can draw comparisons between the treasure hidden in the field and the knowledge and understanding of who Jesus is. Now, after I typed this up, I uh, bear with me, there was a verse that came up that I quite enjoyed as well. Uh, it's in 2 Corinthians 4, 5 to 7. It says, For we preach not of ourselves, it's Paul talking to the Corinthians, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts to give the light of knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. So why do some people find this treasure and others don't? I mean, the man that already owned the field, he obviously hadn't spotted it, because <laughs> who would sell a field that knew that they had treasure in it? So totally went over his head. Jesus explains in the early part of Matthew 13 that people's hearts have waxed gross. That's the King James saying, as some versions say fat. Their hearing, <laughs> their hearing has become dull and their eyes have closed. I find the heart becoming fat part quite interesting. Um, had a little bit of a look into it and a lot of people think, um, this is just an idea thrown out, that a lot of people think that the heart has been made fat with the pleasures of this world. So in my opinion, it kind of makes sense because if you're content with the things of this world, then why would you be searching for something else? Your eyes and your ears will be dull to the things that are outside of the flesh. So 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4 says, But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world, that being the devil, the adversary, has blinded the minds of them which believe not. Lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. What I read out of that is that the adversaries blinded the minds of certain people. I can't see the light of the gospel. And I think, well, the devil has a lot to answer for, doesn't he? <laughs> and he will answer for it. So would you look on someone who is blind and get frustrated that they can't see where they're going or can't picture what you're telling them? Would you start yelling at a deaf person because they don't immediately understand what you're saying? We um, have a bit of a gathering on Friday nights and um, someone on Friday night asked for prayer, specifically for grace in discussing the gospel and other spiritual matters with her, with her workmates. And I thought that was a fantastic prayer request because sometimes I think we can get so excited with the treasure that we've found in Christ that we can be quick to kind of... Um, shove it in people's face a little bit, and, uh, and grow frustrated when they don't see the same value in it as we do. Um, and I, I think, well, I'm speaking on my own here, I think I often forget the following verse, which is very well known, Ephesians 6.12, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. So we're called A, to be harmless as doves, 
but as wise as serpents. So I, I believe we really need to be praying for the opening of the eyes and the unblocking of the ears. That the things of this world will no longer satisfy people. And that's, I think, what's going to get truly, people truly seeking and finding. Because um, if you're content with the things of this world, then why would you look anywhere else? Another thing popped up when reading this verse is the fact that this man went and sold everything he had to buy the field and so legally obtain the treasure within. So I did a bit of reading on it, and like back in those days, I didn't have, really have banks, so people just buried their money in the ground. Um, so it's kind of like, I suppose, whoever owns the field owns the treasure. But if this man is supposed to be like a representation of us, and this treasure is salvation and everlasting life, through our knowledge and acceptance of Jesus Christ, another thought pops up, which is Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So if you Google the meaning of a gift, it literally says a thing given willingly to someone without payment, a present. So if salvation is free, then why would this parable be suggesting that something needs to be paid for in order to obtain it? I think the answer lies in this kingdom that Jesus keeps on talking about, which is in Matthew 18, 1-3, a bit of a clue. At the same time came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called a little child unto him, and, and set him in the midst of them. And said, Verily I say unto you, except you be converted and become as little children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Have you ever heard that phrase, upside down kingdom? Mm. It's not because it's like wonky or misplaced in any way. Um, it's because it's models so different from the worldly one. So Jesus says, you want to be the greatest, then act like the least. You want to be the leader, then become the servant. Uh, you want to be filled, then empty yourself. There's a verse on the wall of the, uh, of the prayer room in there that relates to this. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? Matthew 16, 24. So whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. It's this upside down, upside down to the world concept, that salvation is a free gift that will cost you everything. Does that make sense? Really? It seems real backwards to me, but whatever. <laughs> um, this thought entered my head when I was driving home the other day. Um, what if the man talked about in this parable wasn't us? Like I've always just kind of assumed that, that this is us, symbolizing us finding the gospel. But what if the man symbolized Jesus? The parable before, the wheat and the tears, talks about the field being the world. So what if it's the same thing here? What if it's talking about Jesus coming into the world and giving up everything he had, including his life, to get us? Bear with me. A couple of verses. Um, slide 16, if we could. Exodus 19.5. Now therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people. For all the earth is mine. Psalms 135.4 For the Lord hath chosen Jacob unto himself and Israel for his peculiar treasure. So after I got home and read that, I was like, boom, Mark, you're a genius. <laughs> how, could he, how, could he, how could no one have thought of this before? We're the, Jesus, we're the treasure. Jesus has given up everything to get to us. You know, he leaves heaven. He gives up his life. We're hidden in a field, which is kind of the world. Um, so it all fits. My, uh, my celebrations were pretty short-lived. <laughs> uh, turns out most people have thought of that. Uh, 
and uh, even some of the more scholarly people with flash-sounding titles uh, disagree with that interpretation. Not that that matters. It doesn't matter to disagree with people with flash-sounding titles. But they had, a, they had a number of very convincing reasons, which, which I won't go into. The reason I included this is because I just wanted, I wanted to get some insight into kind of like a treasure-hunting, rabbit-hunting process, you know? Like, yeah, Jeremy's looking at me very confused. Should I move on? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, moving on, uh, to sum up that thought, uh, to sum up the previous thought really, it, it's not so much what we're giving to Jesus, uh, it's the fact that we're giving it all. Um, so Jesus works really well with total surrender. Uh, that child that gave up his lunch, uh, was it the quantity that mattered? No, it was barely enough for two people to share. The fact was that he gave it all to Jesus, and then Jesus takes it from there and feeds thousands of people. So I just felt to say, maybe you feel like you've actually got very little to offer. Um, I'm saying offer all that you have, and Jesus will make it enough. Give everything yourself to him. Time, money, cares, and just watch what he does with it. As you can probably imagine, Juliet and I can relate to this a little bit at the moment. <laughs> it's like when you feel God's calling you to give up something so that he can give you something else. Part of you is like... Oh, I hope it's better than what I'm giving up. <laughs> you start getting flashbacks. You see that old game show. It's in the bag. Anyone ever watch that? I remember when I was younger. What do they do in New Zealand? The money or the bag? And it's like, it's scary, yeah? Because you're not sure what's on the other side. You don't really know what's in the bag. Um, you don't really know what's around the corner. Um, so again, it all comes down to faith. It's like, do we trust that God's got our best interest in mind? That he's going to work out everything for good? Like it says in Romans 8.28, uh, it might be different to what we consider good, uh, but more importantly, it's going to be truly good because it's of God. So as, as Jeremy would remind us, I think we just need to keep on swimming. <laughs> I think about that often, Jeremy. <laughs> now, I believe it would be a little bit amiss if I didn't mention the thing that this parable about treasure is being, conferred, uh, being compared to. The kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is like unto treasure hid in a field. So as per the voice, uh, verses we've already read, we should treasure the kingdom of God and his son Jesus. That's what I believe, reading those verses. When we get to know God more and more, what are we actually learning about him? To me, we're learning about his character. The Bible displays his character, which is his nature, his temperament, his moral qualities, who he is, his glory. Now, Matthew is the only gospel where the phrase kingdom of heaven is mentioned. All the other ones, Mark, Luke, and John, say the kingdom of God. So some people think those things are one and the same. Some people think they're talking about two different things, one spiritual, one physical. Some people say it's now, some people say it's later. Um, that's a massive topic, uh, one that would need its whole own series to go into. Um, one thing that was highlighted to me out of this parable uh, was the value of what the true consummation, so the true realisation, a true completion of God's kingdom is. And we get these amazing prophetic verses like Revelation 12.10. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now has come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, that's the adversary, which accuses them before our God day and night. And we get uh, one of my favorite passages in the Bible, Revelation 21, 1 to 5. Bear with me, sorry, that's really, to talk, really small writing, I know. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, 
for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, and I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all the tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow, nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I will make all, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. So it's like, wow, what a beautiful picture, eh? Like, what a beautiful promise. Now, the order of all these end time things may be up for interpretation, but the outcome is not. Jesus will reign over all creation and all will confess that he is Lord. That's, that's the bottom line. The adversary is going to be put down. My question to you is, does the, does the adversary value the prospect of all these things like suffering and death and pain being done away with? Of course not. Well, what about the world? Does the world value that prospect? The world says that it wants equality and it thinks it can make up its own standard of righteousness, righteousness without God. Is the knowledge of that future without all the suffering and pain and death precious to them? So, just a couple of verses to, to people to think about. Psalm 52.7 says, Lo, this is the man that had made not God his strength, but trusted in the abundance of his riches, not God's riches, his own riches, and strengthened himself in his wickedness. Psalm 52.3 says about the tongue of this man, that thou lovest evil more than good, and lying rather than to speak righteousness. So, uh, <laughs> And Proverbs 8.36, But he that sinneth against me wrongeth his own soul. All that hate me love death. So that's, that's God's wisdom speaking, God's spirit speaking. So not according to these verses, eh? Those that hate God and what he, say, and what he has to say love wickedness, evil, and death. And it makes sense because the Bible says that man's heart is desperately wicked. <laughs> um, the knowledge of God's character of what God ultimately wants to do, and the expectation of that day where even death and sorrow and crying and pain and mowing the lawns will be done away with. <laughs> sorry, sorry, that slipped in there. When, <laughs> when Christ has defeated all principalities and powers that stand against him, that is something that us, well, we as believers should treasure beyond value. That's something that's worth giving everything for. So... How about we end on a bit of a conclusion about our friend Howard Carter and his treasure hunting. His business partner George finally arrives from England. I must have taken ages. It must have been excruciating knowing that that treasure was hidden there and not being able to go into that, that tomb. So he, his business partner arrives and they open the first of a series of rooms in the tomb. What they discovered is acknowledged as probably one of the most important and valuable archaeological discoveries in history, especially in Egyptology. They found the royal tomb of a pharaoh, you probably all know the name of, Tutankhamun, almost completely intact, uh, which was unheard of. Um, only one of its kind, really. Uh, now, if you want to talk about worldly treasure, they found it all. If we could go to some of these slides. Um, 
Look, most of the photos are in black and white. I chose to put up the ones that they've colour rendered because it just makes it a little bit more impressive. Um, so yeah, we've they found it all. So we've got full size statues um, covered in everything's covered in gold, furniture, jewellery. Um, you'll see that those are three full size chariots piled up there in the corner. This was one of four rooms. Um, they found boats, full size boats. Um, and of course, if we go to the next, oh, there's a couple of slides. Yeah, chests full of all kinds of stuff. Um, that's a massive golden shrine full of all his organs. Um, yeah, all, yeah, that's a bit grim, but all kinds of things. Everything you could possibly imagine. Food, heaps of food, wine, beer. Um, and of course, they found this three-layered coffin, of which the inner layer was constructed of pure gold. Solid gold, weighs over 100 kgs, current market value, just in gold alone, over 9 million New Zealand dollars. And then there's his death mask on top of that. So that weighs, I don't know, it was 11 kgs of pure gold, jewels, it's just, it's amazing what they found. Um, over 5,000 items in total. So it took them eight years to catalogue everything, and they reckon that these items are over 3,000 years old. Currently insured for close to a billion dollars. But in the world's eyes, priceless. So these were all the pharaoh's favourite things, his treasures. And they believed that if they had all these things with them in death, that they'd be able to use them in the afterlife. Originally they built these huge pyramids as tombs. Obviously we go and see some of them, or some people have. But what they've quickly found out was these were kind of like a giant X marks the spot for treasure hunters. <laughs> Um, so they switched their thinking and they started to hide their tombs in secret locations. But still, the sad reality for these pharaohs, who were obsessed with living forever and their name being carried on, was that these elaborate tombs that they built, full of all their earthly treasures, were robbed very soon after their burial. All that amazing workmanship and gold and jewels got melted down and sold as scrap by greedy thieves. You didn't want to get caught with the, with the pharaoh's treasure. That, that was not good. So all that stuff melted down if they found it. You probably know where I'm going with this. I'm going to end on a verse. Matthew 6, 19 to 21. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and steel doth corrupt, and where, where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves will not break through and steal. For where your treasure is, there where your heart be also. So my last question for you today is, where is your treasure? And more importantly than that, what is your treasure? Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, that we'd always have ears to hear and, <laughs> ears to hear and eyes to see, Lord God, what you're doing. Um, we're sorry, Lord God, we repent of the times where our treasure has been far too earthly. And we ask that you'd help us um, set our eyes upon the things that are of you and to treasure those things above everything else. Um, so we ask that as we go out into our weeks, Lord God, you'd give us opportunities to share about the wondrous treasure that we have in you. And we ask that we, this would be done with grace. Yeah. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Huntley Baptist Church podcast. We hope that it has been an encouragement to you. Please feel free to contact us at huntleybaptist@extra.co.nz or visit us at huntleybaptist.com.